And I do have to tell the story of my dad came down here from Dallas, and he was a machinist, and I was showing him something on CAD key, and he says, oh, my goodness, you can make colored lines. <laughs> well, I hadn't thought it really about it, but every line I'd ever made before that was gray, just graphite. <laughs> and here I can make a colored line. Right. That was the one thing, but it was wireframe. Right. Oh, all my career, I, from a layout, before you go into drawings, you're trying to prove to the client that it's going to solve his problems, and he can't really see that layout. So we we spent a lot of time making sketches, just hand sketches. So we did a lot of artwork just to show the client what we were doing. Hi there. Welcome back to the SolidWorks Born to Design podcast, a collection of inspiring stories about those who create, build, invent, and engineer new ideas into actual new products. And by the way, they all use SolidWorks. I'm your host, Cliff Medling, and I want to thank you for joining us for this special edition of the Board of Design Podcast, words of wisdom from a 91-year-old SOLIDWORKS user. Today, I'm talking with the 91-year-old Johnny Floyd, who is still today using SOLIDWORKS, and he's still inventing. Johnny's been inventing long before the advent of modern computers or CAD software, and holds several patents and is still working on new ones. Johnny has an enormous amount of wisdom to share with designers and engineers of any age which I believe you will enjoy. So let's jump right into my interview with him. Johnny Floyd, we have a lot to talk about. 64 years as an engineer, you know, you have a lot of knowledge here. You have lots of patents from telescopes to medical devices. What I really read from this is you're a real problem solver. So, but why don't we start from the beginning? Maybe where you got started. We've talked before, but I'd love to hear that story again of where, where you got started and how you decided to get into engineering. And then I'd love to get into what you're doing now and then uh, we'll, we'll cover a lot of things. So, maybe where you got started? Well, I was born in Dallas in 1930, March 19th, uh, in the middle of the Great Depression. Um, I began making my own toys at the age of five because my dad would let me use his tools and I could get uh, apple crates from a grocery store nearby. My dad never really taught me how to use tools. I just watched him. And uh, he let me use them, and I made my own toys. You say, toys? What do you mean? I said, well, guns and pistols and swords and knives and kites with two sticks and kites with three sticks and airplanes, an auto gyro, which nobody's going to know what it is, <laughs> um, wagons and uh, go-karts. That's about it. My tools were a saw, a draw knife. Most people will not know what that is either. It's an old tool. It's used in the Appalachians quite a bit. It's really a great tool for changing the shapes of wood. I was eight when I got a, my first job carrying a magazine route, Ladies Home Journal, uh, Saturday Evening Post. And 11, the war started, and I got a paper route, carried the paper route until the war ended. Dallas was in the midst of changing from 11 years to 12-year system, so I was double promoted from the 7th to the ninth grade, and my mother had the foresight to enroll me in college engineering preparatory at N.R. Crozier Technical High School in Dallas. And there I took uh, all of the shops except auto body and auto mechanics and uh, photography, but I did carpentry, wiring, forging, foundry, upholstery. I took physics the whole four years. I took math the whole four years. 
military was the thing to do at that point. I was in the Reserve Officers Training ROTC and became the youngest full colonel and regimental commander in three years in the school system, and I had a command of a regiment of 900 cadets. And how old were you then? 17. 17. <laughs> wow. Wow. When I got out of there, though, the veterans were returning. Jobs were not quite as plentiful, and I took a job with Sears Roebuck as just a mail runner. Got interested in their copying. I noticed what they were doing in the accounting department and eventually became uh, part of the auditing, which meant I was helping to find fraud within the company. And then uh, I was married too young, divorced too young, married when I was 20, uh, but during the period of mourning that divorce, uh, I joined the uh, Naval ROTC, which met out at Arlington. The Korean conflict was heating up, and my squadron got called, Fazron 701, and we were shipped out to Miramar, north of San Diego, California. So I had already had some technical training, right. and I had accounting now, and I'd also gotten some uh, experience in workflow. I had noticed how much time it took to sort checks. It was like 100,000 checks a month to be sorted. So I made a sorting box. So I, uh, I learned about a place to put your work, a place to do the work, a place to put what your output is early on. And that interested me also. But in the Navy, we had a lot of time. I worked on a lot of engines, um, large radial aircraft engines. So quickly, how, how did that start? I mean, you obviously had the technical background, you were in accounting, but how did you get back to the aircraft engines? You obviously were drawn to it somehow. I don't actually remember how. They also thought I good. I was good in the kitchen. They put me on K, <laughs> KP for three months. They also thought I was good at mopping floors. They put me on barracks duty. But eventually I got to aircraft engines. Uh, a man by the name of Palmer became my crew chief, and I learned a great deal about big engines. I uh, also was introduced to engineering by the uh, squadron engineering officer, saw me making some things, making a, a press to handload ammunition. And he said, I was doing it wrong. At the, I was using a casting wrong. So how do you know that? He said, well, that's engineering. I said, what's engineering? So he took me over to the squadron library, and there was all these Navy manuals with a full college thing from algebra to machine design. And so I, I'd never heard the words like calculus and algorithms and some other terms. Now, now how old were you at this point? 20. 20, okay. 20, and I was married. Uh, my wife eventually came to San Diego. We got an apartment. So I went to work at Love Field uh, taking aircraft engines out of mothballs from World War II, making them available to the commercial market. And it was hot and heavy work and repetitive work. And one day I went home and my hands were cut and burned and darkened and I smelly. And I told her I thought I could do something more important than that. We began to talk it up with a good friend, Bernhard Carl Gersh had also been in the Navy. He had gone overseas. I never got, I never served aboard a ship. I was never in danger. I don't consider myself much of a veteran. Uh, you know, I stand in awe of the man who, who goes to battle. Right. Uh, 
with all due respect. Um, but I did get 34 months of GI Bill, entered the University of Texas. At that point, they told us that there was 467 of us in engineering orientation and that 17 of us would graduate, and not all of us would graduate as engineers. Oh, interesting. <laughs> they don't nurture you at the University of Texas. <laughs> it's dog-eat-dog. <laughs> anyway, I made it through. It's, it's what I really was meant to do. I did well in technical writing and all of... I didn't do well in thermodynamics, but when it came to designing and drawing and uh, math, I could handle all of that very, very well. That's great. I got a job as a freshman doing drafting in the uh, Testing and Guidance Bureau. The Air Force had found that if people could solve the geometric problems, they'd make good pilots. And so we made a lot of diagrams for people to match up. And uh, in my senior year, I got a, a different kind of job designing for Dr. Robert L. Stone, and he was the chair of the ceramic engineering department. So I learned about bricks and ceramics. His wife and I had a falling out. <laughs> <laughs> I left, went to Houston, to Hughes Tool Company. They have, uh, had at that point, Hughes Tool Company had about 860 different products. And they didn't sell their rock bits. They sent them to the field on lease. And an engineer there would tell the driller what to put on. It would go down in the hole, would come back up, would be worn out, would be shipped back to the lab, would be disassembled and measured, and all of that would go to the industrial group for a complete product feedback. Complete. And so I got... <laughs> You know, I got a, a, a different kind of education, and I learned a, a different kind of descriptive geometry. A rock bed, if you've never seen a rock bed, the, the three cones have teeth, and they interact with each other, and they clean the dirt out of each other's mouth, so nice. to speak. Yeah, yeah. And so you were the, designing, so you were the d designing those? I, I designed, yeah. what, what, what we did was the feedback from how they performed told you to move something forward or backwards or make it stronger right. or put more tungsten carbide on it, right. whatever. So it was a complete engineering feedback. I mean, I can't exaggerate that more, complete feedback. We always got the idea that Howard Hughes was there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Never saw him, but they gave you the idea that he somehow was uh, in control of your life. <laughs> and then one day I got a call from Grady Rylander, Dr. Grady Rylander, University of Texas, he says, would you like to come back to Texas? I like to Austin. Well, everybody wanted to come back to Austin. I said, I don't know, tell me about it. He said, well, it's the astronomy department. They need an engineer. So, and I came, we moved back to Austin. And I went to work. Within a day or so, I was called into a meeting with astronomers. Oh my goodness, light years, parsecs. <laughs> We're going to have to go back to Hughes Tool Company. What in the <laughs> world have I done to my family? <laughs> anyway, I came back in on good graces. But I'd been there just a little while, and because of some space requirements, and we were housed close to the physics department, uh, there's some Englishmen were building some Van de Graaff generators over in another building, but they had hired eight engineers. And they said, 
you need space and we need a supervisor. Would you come supervise these eight engineers? So we agreed and I moved down there. It turned out these were eight graduate students. All of them getting their master's and I just had a bachelor's. Ooh, Katie <laughs> barred the door. Yeah. <laughs> these were really sharp guys. Like I'd go over and give them a job time. I'd go back to my desk. They'd be there with a solution. So, so what, what were you designing? What were they designing? The, are they they were new designing to, all of the paraphernalia it takes to do research. A Van de Graaff generator generates electricity. It's a belt, but it generates static electricity. So, so I, I, I'm from the astronomy. I don't. I, I, well, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how that relates. So that's just. I, I didn't. I didn't know anything about astronomy, and I certainly didn't know anything about Van de Graaff generators. <laughs> but then I spent my whole life dealing in things I didn't first know anything about. A friend later would say, I don't know why you make so much money. All you do is make straight lines and circles. And I said, yeah, but I don't know where to put them. Which is... <laughs> That's a keeper. That's a good one. Anyway, the, the basis of the Van de Graaff generator was the electricity came down, and then it was turned magnetically horizontal. And we took an old Navy gun turret and converted it to rotate this magnet and feed all of these pipes and research done on the end of each of these pipes. I really don't know what research they were doing, but it was quite a large so facility. Research, okay, okay, good, good. So good. that was 1961. By 63, the university had hired Dr. Harlan J. Smith um, to come be the director of McDonald Observatory and also the chairman of the Department of Astronomy. And um, he knew how to raise money, and he did. And he wanted to hire a chief engineer off the West Coast, and no one would come, and he kept bringing me the drawings to check them over. So one day I went out there and told him, I said, hey, if, if you can't get a, an engineer to build this telescope for you, I will. I was 35 years old. I'd never built a telescope in my life. But uh, I was already a supervisor of a group of about eight people in astronomy, several engineers and draftswomen, and we were making drawings of things for the astronomers, the instruments to go on the telescope. And so um, the telescope gets designed. Harlan keeps adding foci, places you can observe. Used up a lot of money. People weren't really happy with him. But I, I, I meet Lauren Aker. Lauren Aker was a salesman for Westinghouse Marine Division at San Jose, California, and they get the contract to build the 107-inch telescope. I also meet the people who make the big gears, and the telescope, after some fits and starts, gets built and gets delivered. And by that time, the University of Texas had created a system. It was no longer individual campuses. It was systems. So the system people sent a man out to the observatory one day and there became a conflict between the people who were building the dome, which is going to lift the telescope parts, and the people who are waiting to put the to, to use that lift. And so they had me go out to see what the problem was. Well, the dome was making a squeaking sound. So after a little bit, we figured out what had to happen. And I called back to Austin. And the man that was there, he said, this is well over my pay grade. So he goes down, he writes a letter. He appoints me chief for the construction, <laughs> chief engineer for the construction of the 170-inch telescope. So that's how it happened. It wasn't anything, you know, like I 
came up through the ranks or anything, but I was familiar with it. Right. So, uh, again, back to you were a, a problem solver, so and they knew that about you, I think. Yeah. yeah. I didn't really think of it that way. I just loved doing it. Right. It seemed like the same technique every time. You know, find out what you don't know. Curiosity, math, language skills, keep your cool, mind your manners. <laughs> <laughs> Those things are important as well. It's absolutely, yeah. We eventually had about 40 companies working for us, wow. building the uh, pier. Also, uh, computers were coming in, and everything had been uh, ladder logic until then, but Westinghouse was putting together the telescope, and they were supposed to tilt a worm to a gear, and they did, but they went the wrong direction, and it ruined the worm gear. And so myself and my eight engineers that were working with me we basically said, well, what we have to work with and the money we have to work with, we're going to have to drive this telescope with a spur gear instead of a worm gear. Well, everybody out at Westinghouse knew that spur gears were more accurate than worm gears anyway, but they just weren't as smooth. Every time the teeth come into contact, you'll get a bump against the sky. So we designed some internally preloaded gearboxes to drive the spur gear. So we didn't know if it would work, so we clued some stuff together. We went out to Kitt Peak National Observatory, and who do we find but Lauren Aker. He had quit Westinghouse, and he was now the director of engineering at Kitt Peak. We went over to the local hospital, which is teaching, clinical, and research, and he uh, wandered around the halls and collected a bunch of information about what hospitals and doctors needed and what the blood collection industry needed. And so about the time we go out there, he's forming a company called Engineering Research Associates, ERA Incorporated. So we finished the telescope, and he and I, well, I don't see the next thing that happens is I leave astronomy and go to physics department where they're building a tokamak, a Russian word, probably means donut, it looks like a donut. It's a magnetic device for research on plasma. Fusion, plasma. Fusion, not, not nuclear reaction, but fusion. Well, I stay there three and a half years. Eventually, we get the money, and I start designing. And then the legislature decides to take away all my sick leave. So I leave the university and form a company. Funny. And the physics department decides, wait a minute, we need you to finish the tokamak. <laughs> so my partner and I, Alan Brune, and I finished the tokamak drawings. We made about, I don't know, 35 layouts, and those were sent to uh, what used to be Pratt Whitney and put it together. I just want to point out through all this, you're still using pencil and paper drawings still. Most yes, of the time, yes. yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is, we're still talking oh, long yeah. before SolidWorks and, and computers still aren't being uh, implemented here. You know, you've been drawing and creating and inventing since before SolidWorks. And, uh, and now SolidWorks and these tools and a lot more tools have come along. So talk maybe a little bit about that. You mentioned batteries as well, but what are the big technology breaks that you saw over your long career? I mean, we have everything now. The way they came about, though, you know, it doesn't start really until about, what, 95? Right, that's when SolidWorks, yeah. So most of my career, 
from forty from fifty seven to uh, ninety five was the drawing board. So when did you start using software for the drawing? I don't recall the year, but it was CAD key. It was CAD key, yeah, yeah. And it was wireframe. And I do have to tell the story of my dad came down here from Dallas. And he was a machinist, and and I was showing him something on CAD key, and he says, "Oh my goodness, you can make colored lines." <laughs> well, I hadn't thought it really about it, but every line I'd ever made before that was gray, just graphite. <laughs> And here I can make a colored line. Right. And, and CAD key had a real nice feature. You can make a parallel line with a click. Right. That was the one thing. But it was wireframe. Right. And um, trying to prove, oh, all my career I, from a layout, before you go into drawings, you're trying to prove to the client that it's going to solve his problems. And he can't really see that layout. So we, we've spent a lot of time making sketches just hand sketches. So we did a lot of artwork just to show the client what we were doing, make them comfortable. Because right. oh, so, they really didn't understand the wireframe, right? Yeah. No, they no, it didn't look like anything but uh, a wireframe. <laughs> colored lines. <yeah. laughs> Col- colored lines, yeah. And I got SolidWorks, I think the second year right. it was out. Uh, Michael Leasley was a UT professor, and he formed a company, MLC CAD System, and uh, came and uh, showed me, and I bought it the second year. I'm not a power user because I was also running business. I just purchased a simulation not long ago because I had to because I didn't have anybody else to do the stress analysis and, you know, deflections. Right, right. (laughs) Other than my... my, uh, my thickness gauge over there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's great. I don't know what else to say. Oh, well, well, Everything uh, else in my world changed. Pencils changed. Paper changed to plastic. Uh, furniture changed. We got set to stand. Measuring instruments changed, improved. Calculators came along. We got reverse Polish. We got arithmetic. Uh, we got programmability and a little handheld calculator. And then I have a very powerful workstation. Right. Um, but I don't have a lot of other people around to help me. Right. And because I work in patents, I, in the new patent law, I can't reveal anything until I have spent the money filing a patent. Right. Uh, once I do and get a filing date, then I can do market studies. Then I can hire other people. Right. Um, well, tell, tell, us, tell us more about that. Tell us about your new invention. You're always inventing. So. Well, the lensware consists of two and then three cells, hydraulic cells. One cell changes focal length in a spherical manner. The second cell changes shape in a cylinder, and that is what it takes, sphere and cylinder, to make the prescription for your eyewear. But I use no prescription lenses, no ground surfaces. I just buy a plastic sheet and the way they're mounted at their edges gives me extremely good images. I can focus from one foot to 10,000 feet. I can correct astigmatism. I can mass produce eyewear. Mass produce eyewear. Now, the elephant in the room is Luxottica. They're called SLR Luxottica now. 
SLR France, Luxottica of Italy. SLR bought Luxottica. Luxottica moved all of their manufacturing to China, or a lot of it. They control 34% of the market, and yet they say there are 1 billion, 40 million people with presbyopia so severe they cannot work. I interviewed a nurse from Ethiopia. She grew up nearsighted. She was considered a woman of worth. She took a trek of two days to a place where they could get her eyewear. She eventually got to the United States. One night she was treating me while I was in the hospital and we started talking. And she said, you know, in Ethiopia, if you can't work, we don't feed you. I was shocked. For the lack of eyewear, you don't get fed. And what she really meant was, it takes three people. If two of them can work and one can't, they can't feed that third person. And so lenswear, you order it, we make it, we've already got the parts made, put it in a box, ship it, you adjust it to your face, you adjust the optics, correct your vision. That's it. That's great. It It is not a mass custom item as is your eyewear. Well, well, hopefully, we'll, you know, this podcast will get to the right people. And there's, some, <laughs> there's some very uh, smart people who uh, bring, uh, listen. Br- okay. Bring them on. Right? My pitch, bring money and young people. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, but I see way too many people have never made anything. Well, I mentioned still, it out right? here at the Science Academy. Yeah. They give the kids a problem to solve, and they're going to fail. Right. They give them a big old mouse trap as their their engine, motor. Right. Big old, big old mouse trap. <laughs> have to learn how to not go so fast. You know, use all that energy. Right. And they fail. Then they teach them physics, statics, and dynamics, because then they know what they did wrong. Now they know they have done something. Right. And the and the enemy is plastic. Since forty six, everything that. I need, everybody needs, made out of plastic. I did not have to make that ice box. Right, right. <laughs> right. I didn't have to make this table. Maybe one last thing. What's your advice? You've got so many, so many years of knowledge. What would you pass on? What are your greatest lessons you've learned that you pass on to, to others? I'll just quote, if you're going to be a designer or engineer, learn the manufacturing machines and processes pertaining to your products, their advantages, their specific superiority, their tooling requirements, the skills needed to run them, their surface finish and lay, and their cost. See the machines operating. Learn from those that design for the processes. Number one, nothing is so detrimental as an excess line, surface, concept, or experience. Parts are subtracted from material corners but mostly assembled, aligned on holes. Leave as much as you take out. Provide access for hands and wrenches. Don't confuse strength with stiffness. A bent column supports more weight than a straight column. We know because it takes more load to buckle a straight column, but don't build buildings with bent columns. When you look at a product, you see the products, the surfaces facing you. These are not the surfaces You touch when you use the product. Finish the design. 
the first things you put on a layout are those things that cannot be changed. However, don't be in such a hurry to accept things as fixed. Look at problems from all directions. Use your inventiveness. Learn from your mistakes, but don't learn too much from a bad outcome. Elasticity is the ability of a material to return to its original shape when released from stress, not how much a shape will deflect under load. If a design cannot be made, the designer failed. Concrete, aluminum, and glass all weigh about the same. Steel is twice as stiff as cast iron. Cast iron is 50% stiffer than aluminum. Aluminum is 10 times stiffer than most plastics. The statement material one is 10 times less strong than material two is absolutely poor writing and shows even less understanding of math. Material number one is only 10% as strong as material number two, or material number two is nine times stronger than material number one. Necessity is the mother of invention. Perseverance is the force that gets it done. In your presence, don't let others speak in jargon. Ask them for a definition. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I'm glad we got that in. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed hearing Johnny's stories and came away a little more inspired. Also, if you're looking to connect the industry-leading SOLIDWORKS 3D CAD solution to a fully collaborative, cloud-based product development environment, check out SOLIDWORKS.com collaborate to learn how Collaborative Designer for SOLIDWORKS connects SOLIDWORKS CAD data to the 3D experience platform and provides streamlined access to SOLIDWORKS CAD data via web-based and mobile apps, accessible anytime, anywhere. That's SOLIDWORKS.com collaborate. We'll be back again soon with more great Born to Design podcast stories at SOLIDWORKS.com slash podcast or wherever podcasts are readily available. Until then, keep innovating. I really hope that what you heard today has inspired you. If you enjoyed it, please head on over to iTunes, search for the Born to Design podcast, and leave us a five-star review so that this podcast will be recommended to more people, helping us expand the Born to Design community. Thank you.